Hello and welcome everybody. It's great to see you all here this afternoon. Thank you very much. And a big, big thank you to Arts Council England because without them we couldn't do the things that we do. So a big thank you to them. And so I will now introduce the wonderful poets. So I'm very much looking forward to this event this evening. We've got Shazad Doja, who is the poet and founder, editor-in-chief of the literary journal, Luxembourg Review. His work has appeared in New Welsh Review, Pratique, Guttural, Voices and Verses, Fresh from the Fountain, and many, many more. His poetry collection, Drift, was published by UPL Monsoon Letters in 2016. And we also have James Byrne, whose most recent poetry collections are Everything Broken Up Dances and White Coins. He's co-editor of Atlantic Drift, an anthology of poetry and poetics and voice recognition, 21 Poets for the 21st Century, published by Blood Axe, along with Claire Pollard. And Claire Pollard has published five collections of poetry with Blood Axe, the latest of which is Incarnation. Claire's translation projects include a version of Ovid's Heroines, which she toured as a one-woman show, and a co-translation of Asha Lul Muhammad Yusuf's The Sea Migrations, which was the Sunday Times Poetry Book of the Year. And she is also editor of the Modern Poetry in Translation, and there are copies at the back as well. And her new book, Fierce Bad Rabbits, will be out in the beginning of August. So I'd like you all to give a very big warm welcome to Ayam Rohingya. Thank you very much. Okay, so I'm going to step up first and introduce everything. Um, thanks all for coming. It's good to see you. And my name's James, as you just heard. Uh, and this is Shazar as well, my co-editor of this book. This book. In fact, yeah, I am Rohingya. It's, uh, this is the first reading of the anthology in the country. It's the first official launch of the book. So thanks so much for coming. In a moment, I'm going to give you some context of what propels the necessity of our reading and discussion today on Rohingya poetry. But first, I thought I would just um, say a few thank yous. So firstly, thank you to Ledbury. It's really great to be back here again. Uh, thanks to Philippa to Chloe, to all the staff. It's just the best poetry festival in the country, really, isn't it? We're all in agreement? Yeah? Thank you. Um, and uh, thanks, Bethany, as well, for that introduction. Thanks for picking us up from the train station late last night. Really appreciate that. Uh, thanks also to ARC Publications, who are here, Tony and Angela who do such extraordinary work for poetry in translation and poetry in English also. Um, they are, um, they've really, I'm just gonna hold it up one more time, last time for a while. Uh, they have made such a beautiful book here and I think a, a really timely and uh, important anthology. Um, so, I am a Rohingya, poetry from the refugee camps and beyond. I have to thank Shezar as well, my co-editor and friend and it's, it's really been such a deep and immersive experience for us, hasn't it? We went to the refugee camps, which are the largest refugee camps in the world. Over one million people um, are living there very precariously. And we ran the first poetry workshops in those refugee camps. Um, I have to thank also an extraordinary uh, visionary, uh, Runa Khan as well, who is here. There's Runa right at the front, um, who helped enable us to facilitate the poetry workshops in the camps. Uh, Runa runs Friendship NGO, so you can find out more about Friendship if you Google them, doing a, a, amazing work. Um, so as I say, there are, there are one million people, over one million people uh, displaced and 
is the largest uh, refugee camp in the world. There are also, and perhaps you don't know this, but there are 200,000 people who are also trapped. Um, they can't get into the camps. They're trapped in a uh, genocide zone, it's been called, genocide zone, which is uh, in between uh, Myanmar and Cox's Bazaar, where the camps are. Most of all, I want to thank all the poets who contributed to this book. Um, there are some 18 poets who are, most of them, um, between the ages of 18 and 30. It's a new generation of Rohingya poetry. We also have, and I'm sure this will feed into our discussion today, um, uh, folk songs, some of them going back hundreds of years, which have been transcribed by Shezar and translated. Uh, so there are sort of two strands of Rohingya poetry that will be part of our discussion today. And also, um, I have to thank Claire. It's really good to work with you always. Good to see you again. We're going to start with a video, which is uh, from a young poet in the refugee camp. I'll just tell you a little bit about him. He writes, as most Rohingya poets do, under a pseudonym. His is pacifist Farouk. And, well, he's, he loves football. He loves acting. He loves poetry. And... Um, yeah, he, had to, he was born in 2000 in northern Rakhine State in Myanmar, and he completed his education in 2006. But as with uh, really all Rohingya, he was denied further education. So his dream is simply to go to a university and to, uh, to be a poet, and he's a great poet. Please welcome uh, Pacifist Farouk, a video from the camps. I'm a teacher, I'm a translator, I'm a footballer, I'm from a Burmese singer and songwriter. I was born and raised in Butidon, North Arakan state of Myanmar. Alhamdulillah, I completed my matriculation exam with two distinctions on 2016, but I could not pursue my higher education simply because I'm a Rohingya. However, during the genocidal operation of Kamadok, I nearly escaped from genocide and lived here as a refugee in the world's largest refugee camp of Bangladesh. Today, I'm, I don't want to tell you much about me because you may know about me through the poem I'm going to read today. The title of the poem is My Life. Here is my life in brief. I was a frog in a well. A prisoner in a jail of fresh air, in the dark, dark cosmos, no days, dark nights, night. A small cormorant survives the genocidal waves by being flung, crashing into the wall as consciousness. A storm of racism, of hate, this is my life. Just like an action movie in which you are the gangsters, just like an actor who cannot discover his line in Arkan. They kill and bury you under the treasure of criminals. I'm really proud that my poems are invoked in the book I'm a Rohingya. This will be the first poetry anthology in English. At the same time, I want to thank from the bottom of my heart to those who did and helped to get such an incredible book. Being in this book means much for me. Being in this book means everything for me. Being in this book, not only I create a history for our Rohingya community, but also I take revenge 
on a politician of Myanmar whose name is Ulasu. On the 1st of October 2017, while my people are being killed in Arakan, he said in a press release, Rohingya are illiterate, Rohingya know nothing, nothing about education. On that day, I wrote it down on my notepad. That's why I take revenge on him being in the book of Rohingya. That's why I take that's why I prove that Rohingya can be everything as long as they give us opportunity. But still I have one more revenge to take on our own government, that is to join and study in any university of the world while they don't want us, they prevent us from us from joining university within our own country. It's very shameful for me. Abolition such a good book. We can inspire our youth. We can inspire our community to work hard for our life, which our government denies. This will help our community a lot. This is very good initiative. This is a this is good initiative for us through the power. People across the world can hear the suffering of our people inside and outside of Arkham. Um, I believe that reading poetry across the world can melt the heart of the people like us. Reading poetry can affect the heart and soul of our Burmese government. Peace through artists powerful, peace through weapons harmful. Thank you. Okay, I'm just going to read you the uh, second stanza of that poem. A small cormorant survives the genocidal waves by being flung, crashing into the world's strangeness, storm of racism, storm of hate. This is my life. Okay, um, one of the things you know, might have noticed about that video is there's a lot going on in the camps. Okay, sounds of chickens, a uh, lot of people talking. Um, it's very confined space. And um, even in the fairly grainy texture of that video, you probably noticed there are a couple of moments where pacifist Farouk simply pauses and is quite overwhelmed, I think, um, at uh, you know, having to try and cohere the state of his own predicament. This is a poem by Mayu Ali, and it's called That's Me, a Rohingya. When I was born, I was not a baby like you are, without a birth certificate, just like death. When I was one, I was not a child like you are, without a nation, just like a pet. When I was at school, I was not a student like you are, without a Burmese face, just like the bleakness of the future. When I was in another village, I wasn't a resident like you are, seeking approved, over, approval overnight just like a crazed detainee. When I pass through my town, I'm not a citizen like you are, holding Form 4 authorization, just like a nomad. When I go to university, I'm not a fresher like you are, 
denied professionalism a major, just illegitimate. When I approach people, I'm not acceptable like you are, suffering apartheid and chauvinism, just like quarantine. When I want to marry, I'm not a fiancé like you are, approval for marriage, just like an alien. When I want to repair my hut, I'm not allowed to like you are, fa facing palpable denial, just like an invader. When I want to arrange a little trade, I'm not a vendor like you are, ongoing, restricted, confiscated, just like a pauper. When I apply for the civil service, I'm not a candidate like you are, receiving the motive of rejection, just like someone segregated. When hospitalized in the state-run clinic, I'm not the favorite patient like you are, marginalized, discriminated, just like an outsider. When I choose religion, I'm not faithful like you are, Rest restricted worship in a demolished mosque, just inhuman. When I'm in the orchestrated riot, I'm not a survivor like you are, no assurances of safety, just like a rape victim. When the new year turns, I'm not a civilian like you are, under decades-long operations, just an inventory item. Even when I live in the country where I was born, I can't call it mine like you do, without identity, just like an immigrant. Even when I breathe the sky's air, I'm not human like you are, without a reliable undertaker, just like a loner. Even when I watch the sunrise, I'm not living like you are, without the fertility of hope, I live just like a sandcastle. Despite living on the apex of inhumanity and the direness of immorality, I'm quite surrounded. My skin trembles just to feel once the full meaning of freedom. My heart wishes to walk just once in my own world. Nowadays, no one is like me, only myself, just a Rohingya. I hand you over to Shezar. Hi there. So um, this is a translation of one of the songs that I had collected um, on my first trip down, no, on my second trip down in the Rohingya camps from this uh, wonderful singer, Johnny Alam. And uh, we do have videos of that online, which I'll share later. And uh, again, this was also published uh, in the book in the same modern poetry and translation issue. Uh, this is Love Song, sung to me by Johnny Alam, and uh, transcribed by Bilkis Akhtar, and translated by myself. Molly Mer Bordala. En route to her house, they, three or four, traveled and feared what the tiger will do after it has consumed. I have no fear of this tiger. In my dreams as I sleep, I see, I hear her like a witch doctor. She remains unafraid, chews pawn constantly. I discover Hajira's fragrance on the bird's handkerchief. 
Near the king's palace, the rich build houses of tin. They weigh grain to be sold at the marketplace. On Saturday, the teacher who enlightens, who pities the masses, asks Hajira to bring her a jug of water. Asks after Hajira had flung aside her blanket of flowers. You catch yourself slipping and falling on the narrow road, a black water jug cracked on a dark night. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, uh, I'm very um, pleased indeed that we that we got to publish some of these poems and um, that our readers got a sneak peek of yeah. this anthology. And I think it is such an important, such a beautiful anthology. Um, it's important because it's poetry of witness. And many of us, of course, have seen lots of things on the news. But how, how often have we actually heard the Rohingya people t talking about their, directly to us about their own experience? Um, without it being mediated. Um, so it's important in that aspect, but it's also important just because it's great literature. I think it really, it really is. There's some absolutely beautiful work in this, in this book and I, I urge you all to buy it. Um, I mean, perhaps, I think we should start perhaps by talking a bit about the, the process by which this anthology came together because it's actually quite unusual, isn't it? You've got this two-pronged attack. <laughs> You've got these traditional um, songs that you're, you're beautifully being transcribed and translated, which I, I, I'm fascinated by, and I think we can talk a bit more about those in a moment. But then there's also, the rest of the anthology was almost created afresh. Mm -hmm. so yeah, that, I mean, there's a, I've never experienced an anthology mm, process yeah, like yeah. this. We, we actually thought, we were going to the refugee camp, Shezar and I, of course, you'd already been, and, and we thought we had a strong pamphlet in our hands of work that we'd been uh, together and independently translating over mm. the, the previous year. And we came back from the refugee camp after the workshops, uh, partly instigated by Tony, the publisher at ARC, saying, yeah. you, you seem to be working on a book here. Like, yeah, we, there's a lot of uh, material from the workshops. And it was amazing because, you know, we like, we, like you said, we did enter with a 32-page pamphlet and, you know, we were, that, that was our expectation. But just the sheer amount of work and effort put in by the by put in by the by the poets and in, in the in the next few days and next week when the with them sending in the poems and everything it just sort of so can you song. say a little about how the workshops kind of worked when you there hadn't been anything like this before really or I, it's not it's not a model i would have been? believe not uh, this is an idea that we had both uh, uh, thought of doing it was uh, it was very important for us to go there and sort of meet the writers that mm -hmm. we were engaged with. I had been to the camps before James hadn't, and um, I think it was you know it's, it's so very important to actually meet meet a lot of them that we had just been on con in contact with, and from there it just you know it was just sort of inspiration at first sight for you know for us as well just to be able to 
meet them and then what more yeah. I mean, yeah, I totally agree. Um, we, the first thing we actually did, Claire, was we, we handed out copies of MPT uh, on, and this is not a plug, this is the truth. <laughs> yeah. We handed out copies of MPT to the poets. Um, we gave copies to everyone uh, in the workshops. We gave copies of World Literature Today uh, magazine in the United States. Um, and, and to see the reaction before we even had a, any kind of taught session or workshop at all, yeah that there was a voice that had been enabled, that they had a voice, and that their poems could be printed and published. And well, that, I, I think I that th gave a real impetus to the workshops. I don't think, like, uh, like one of them was telling, uh, telling me that it never even occurred to them in the first place that, you know, that their work would be published, let alone, you know, in such, you know, journals. Mm. Uh, and I, I think that comes... Yeah. Yeah. That just comes from being systematically yeah. oppressed, denied um, an education, but also a literature that's totally been denied or yeah. attempted to um, by the, the Burmese government and, and, and their genocidal operations. Yeah, so can we talk a little about that then? Like Traditionally, Rohingya literature has been in the margins, I think you said in the introduction. Mm. And it would have been orally transmitted, maybe? Is that true? I feel that a large portion is because uh, there is a, there's a very rich, enriching oral tradition and, and that we can see through the songs and how these songs are sort of, um, you know, sort, of ha sort of handed down from one singer to another and then that song is sort of worked upon by a new generation and then uh, sort of it sort of uh, culminates in what, uh, the song sort of culminates in what we're listening to at that period of time. And from there, I think, uh, from the literature perspective at least, this new generation of writers that's coming in now that, you know, the, uh, our poets are they're fantastic in that sense that they're sort of starting a new traditional, but that sort of reaching audiences which wouldn't have, they wouldn't have before. Mm. And I think that, they're doing something about um, the, the, the oppression of their own literature in a very, uh, I think this was embodied by uh, pacifist Farouk in the video where he says, I am taking revenge, which actually sounds quite mm. aggressive, but he said, I'm, I'm taking revenge against uh, 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 literature that has been denied by, by writing it. You're not, you're not gonna stop me writing, uh, mm. ultimately. And I think that's this kind of determination and um, you know perseverance, but also it comes with real skill, yeah, you know, yeah. real skill and willingness to improve as a writer. Is that all those things seem to converge and, um, and pro the prov provoke the spirit of the workshop. Yeah, and the fact that they choose to write in English specifically mm. in order to reach the widest uh, audience mm. possible. I think that was a very interesting thing that we learned. Yeah, yeah. about and that Mayor Alec poem is, yeah. is directed at an English speaking audience. Yeah, in a yeah way, I very much it? so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean about two thirds of the poets at least are, are writing in English yeah. language and we still we do have songs as Shazar said. Yeah. Um, I'm going, just going back a little bit, the workshops were in the camps for two days and you can't do anything in Cox's Bazaar in the evening, it's a total lockdown, so what happens at night, often people don't report um, what's going on, but our workshops yeah. were during the day we were in there first, first light, and then we would leave at five o'clock. Um, and we, we taught a range of poets from yeah. T.S. Eliot, 
uh, Ezra Pound, Mina Loy, Mayakovsky, Wallace Stevens, and, and quite a lot of themes as well yeah. within those, those poets for two days. Yeah, there was a wide range, and I think uh, a lot of the, one of the things that for me uh, they were completely fascinated by was the form. Was, was sort of like form and structure and the fact that you could use the blank spaces. And these hadn't, you know, I, I don't think they've ever had access to, mm. to sort of more modern uh, and poetry. And how it looks on the page. And how, and how it can sort of come about on the page. Mm. So I think, I think those, sort of, those sort of introductions to them and then they followed it, they followed it through, they looked up and um, just the just a shift to the next day was absolutely remarkable. Do you think that ties back into the songs? Uh, you know, sort of thinking yeah. about the physicality of the poem in some yeah. way. There's this sort of new p permission to think about breath yeah. and the physicality of the poem. I suppose a lot of the the, the songs do sort of translate its uh, its breath into because um, the songs are very communal in nature. It, it sort of takes this identity of we as a sort of a communal spirit as it does in many, uh, many, uh, many traditional Bengali folk songs as well. You know, there's a lot of commonality there. So uh, in that sense, it does sort of that breath, that space which it gives the, the audience, the, re, you know, the, the listeners, it sort of, it sort of brought back into the written page in a completely new way. Mm -hmm. That participation, it's like an invitation exactly. to the reader. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, we've touched on the, the fact a lot of the young writers are writing in English, which I think is really interesting. But also perhaps we should talk about, there's a, there's a whole melting pot of different language, language influences and things going on here, isn't there? And different ways of writing, writing and so on. Um, could we say, first of all, something about the Rohingya language itself? Because people might not even know, know of the language. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah, do you want to? Uh, please, sir. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's a, a, a literature which is basically still on the point of extermination. Um, mm -hmm. So there is a book coming out later this year called uh, Endangered Languages, I yes. think, which mm -hmm. we have uh, the, the poem, that, poem song that uh, Shazar just read. Um, I mean, it's, there, are, there are two ways of considering the language uh, in terms of it's, it can be written in uh, the Arabic uh, script or it yeah. can be lit, written in uh, Bengali. Bengali in yeah. Bangla. And, and you were working on the Bangla I was working side. On the, I was working actually on the Bangla mm -hmm. side of it, sort of when the songs are sort of transcribed into Bengali. And then from there, I was taking that and translating it. And I think it's, it's down to a lot of the oral, like the systematic oppression that's been there, that the sort of the development of the language, because it's been not allowed to sort of be uh, written down. It's uh, to be sort of taught. I, mm. It's been sort of uh, been interesting to sort of use that as, a, you know, to sort yeah. of transcribe it down to the Bengali format and then sort of translate it down from there. So do, do many people still speak it in the Yeah, it's, yeah. it's mostly spoken, but mostly spoken, much less but written. Less, much less written. And actually, yeah. I mean, there is a third way, which yeah. is to, to write uh, the Rohingya language in English as well. Mm. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, that's what some of the younger generation are doing because the they've got access to writing in, in the original mm -hmm. script. It's very interesting. If you remember in Chittagong, we have after 
we, uh, they had uh, we had done a reading over there, and we had a couple of uh, Rohingya uh, poets reciting their work, and and a member of the audience had said that it you know had, had remarked how very close to Bengali, at, at least on an or oral level, mm. it sounded. So there is a lot of sort of, uh, it has its own unique feature as its own language. Yeah. And it's also a blending, it's a melange of, you know, that kind of, uh, from that area as well, the region, the regional languages, so. That, that was a really interesting day in Chittagong. So that was just before we went to the camps. Chittagong is in Bangladesh, uh, a few hours from, from Dhaka. And um, actually, in this case, we were working uh, not with refugees who live in the camps, but with Rohingya, young Rohingya poets who have gained a place on a college course. Um, but interestingly, they are not allowed to, in fact, it would be unwise to use their Rohingya name. So they're li they're, they're, they have a, a new name at, at a, a college, and they're constantly in fear that their real identity would be discovered. So they were extraordinarily brave to come and meet us. We met in yeah. an art gallery and had a, a, a day-long workshop. Mm. Yeah. And the first paintings that they saw in the art gallery were from, a, a, I think, an Arkhan or mm. kind was from an Arkhan or a kind artist. Mm. And the, it was, the homeland. Yeah, from the homeland. And they were so, you know, and I think one of them was telling me that uh, they felt so invited in just to see that. So I think that sort of gave them the safe space. They felt that it was a safe space. And, and th there was one poet in the workshop. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was amazing to see that reaction. There's one poet in the workshop who had never written a poem, actually. Yeah. And so we set, we set a lyric exercise in Chittagong, um, you know, just use the eye, repetition and lyric. And the first line of poetry he wrote was, I am afraid of someone I don't know. <laughs> yeah, what a start. Did anyone start poetry as good as that? <laughs> I didn't. It's probably um, a haiku about an autumn leaf or something. Yeah, probably. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, do you mind if I read that poem? No, Can please I read do. That poem? Yeah, it's, it's a short poem. And, and it's wonderful. Just for a bit of context, uh, he was sitting there and you know, he just started writing it and everybody, and you know, he, was, he, he wasn't sure about writing poetry. And he was there, you know, like a lot of his, like much like he was, um, I, think, I think it comes down to this feeling of not, you know, like everything that he's seen, everything that he's been through, you know, there's that sort of fear of saying things that he might be afraid of. And I think this sort of, the safe space that was created, which is so important, is uh, sort of, is wonderful to see the emergence of a new, mm. you know, poetics from him, a new poetry. Mm. Here's the poem. Someone I'm Afraid Of by Zaki Oves. I'm a hungry star in the sky covered by jealous clouds. I'm a goldfish plant in the garden, shaded from daylight. I'm a fly in the kitchen, buzzing on the boundary of a blind wall. I'm a chicken under mother's wing, confined to the narrows of a wattle. I'm a dove on the street of Yangon, jailed in a cage of inhumanity. I'm the water flowing in Mayu River, missing my partner air. I'm a human in the universe, denied the most basic rights. I'm someone I'm afraid of. It's the first poem by Zaki Oves. Amazing. Yeah. Wow.
Um, you touched then on, on names and the, 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 the risks attached to naming um, for various reasons. Perhaps we could talk about that a bit more because as soon as you start reading this anthology, you'll start to realise a lot of these writers are using pseudonyms. Yeah. And we were talking about how, obviously, in some ways, that is a very sen sensible decision because the, the people could be at risk. Um, but it's also actually part of a tradition as well. Um, yeah. Kind of an aesthetic. Um, yeah, it's an aesthetic, exactly. It's an aesthetic choice as well. Uh, we have quite a lot of poets in this book whose uh, first name under the pseudonym is Roe. And Roe, obviously, is a choice for Rohingya. Yeah. So again, it's to, it's to create awareness. Um, and, and it comes from that sense of commun you know, communality to put the we before the I. And you have, therefore, the communal identity as well. The yeah. role. It's almost like a non, in a sense. Exactly. Then. It's a yeah. bit like that mm. kind of being part of the tradition of the folk songs yeah. where everyone adds their own. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's interesting, sort of turn from the conventional lyric uh, for the communal yeah. gesture, which I think is quite heartening in, the, in mm -hmm. these times. Um, and then often the second, there's, pass there's a few pacifists. There's a couple of pacifists, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you see, again, going back to um, the first video that you saw, um, this idea of, uh, you know, activist pacifist, which um, others have written about this, the Australian poet John Kinsella self-defines as an activist pacifist. So you do have you know, very activist sensibility here, yeah. but non-violent. And mm. I think that's, that's really mm. admirable given, yeah. you know, every poet we worked with has experienced something really deeply traumatic. Either mm. they've had uh, perhaps their mother or father have been killed in front of them, or at the very least their house, has, uh, their hut has been torched. Um, uh, and they've um, had to flee and, and see devastation during that fleeing. Yeah. And this goes back to the poetry of witness as mm. well. I mean, coming through and seeing every, you know, seeing what everything that they've gone through, it's, 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 it's incredible how resilient uh, all these writers are and, and to be able to create such beautiful art, you know, to be mm. able to create such beautiful poetry from that, mm. it's mm. truly a remarkable, Achievement, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that must have felt, I mean, in the workshops, that must have been something you were, a, a risk in the workshops that there's such material that you're, I don't know how you dealt with that, but, you know, you didn't, I guess you didn't want to ask people to approach that stuff directly, but in another mm -hmm. way, they want to find a form or a shape or a way to process yeah. or articulate that. Material. Absolutely. I think that's really important, actually, in you know, sort of the mm -hmm. ethic sensibility of the workshop as well. Mm -hmm. Um, we, weren't, we weren't looking for particular poems uh, yeah. to be written. We did set some exercises, yeah. and just things would organically emerge. Um, mm. I'll just give you an example. Um, uh, I was, uh, well, setting an exercise on Wallace Stevens. You know the poem, 13 Ways? Of course you do. Yeah. 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. I just said, well, could you write, you know, 13 Ways of Looking at Something? And uh, a wonderful young poet called Mohammed said, I want to write a poem called 13 Ways of Looking at yeah. a Passport. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, he doesn't have a passport. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there it is. You know, there's the, the, the sort of, it, it, it does strip down to the sometimes the most um, uh, sort of the, the, the bare, raw emotion. You know, there yeah. he conceived something yeah. extraordinary, but couldn't write it. 
uh, it was the same sense for the like we had set an ex uh, we we had set an an uh, sort of uh, exercise as a sonic phrases, mm. and you know we had I, I I was playing some music for them some very haunting music, and um, I told them to just you know see where the song where the music sort of takes them and one or two really wonderful pieces were beginning to emerge from that. Some of them were just drawing all over the page, you know, closing their eyes and then seeing where the, you know, where the music sort of uh, took them. And then some of them said that they couldn't write because it was, you know, it was... The music, the was, music was very powerful and... Too, too raw. It was too raw. So, mm -hmm. so we had like a wide range of different exercises which I felt uh, we, we tried to sort of bring about everybody's... Yes. give people the space. Exactly, and not force mm, anything on them, but let it come from them. Mm. I, I think that's really important just, yeah. I mean, in general for, for my own poetics as well, which is, you know, the possibilities of error. Mm. You know, the idea that things can emerge, um, you know, not necessarily by accident, there is thinking, but well, the possibilities of chance and perception, just trusting this. And, I must say, all, I mean, everyone in the workshop was, was just so keyed in to the, the, yeah. the, you know, to try things out, given uh, what they, again, I know we're repeating this, what they've been through, it's just extraordinary, the trust. Of course, every poetry workshop only yeah. works because mm. of trust, yeah. but that was there right from the beginning. Uh, we had a poet who was not there, who did not return the second day because, unfortunately, there was a fire in the, camp. in the yeah. camps, mm. and I think he had sent us his, I think everything that he had taken in from the first day, he sent us a poem after that. Mm. And it was, it's wonderful to see how they sort of uh, all kept in touch mm. after that. Very and, wonderful. you know, the safe space that, you know, which is so very important mm. is sort of continuing on well, from there. Yeah, absolutely. And you can yeah. see just how dry it is. Yeah. You can see just from this image. Um, I don't know if, if Shezar, you want to say anything about the, the land where the camps are, but it's not just that people are living in makeshift huts, um, as I say in the introduction, that are airless in the boiling sun, so kind of flammable, but also the ground itself is eroding. And uh, I mean, it's, it used to be a national park there. Yeah, it was, the, it was the reservation, it was the forest, was, all of these were complete lines of forests and uh, that were, you know, that were sort of had to be, that were sort of cut down and made way for these camps. And I think because of that, there's a lot of risks of erosions and floods and mm. things happening. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that's true. The present moment is yeah. so, so dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, you think another- the fires as well. The fire and then another yeah. monsoon next year. I mean, will these huts survive? But also, I mean, they have survived for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Cox's Bazaar, I don't know if you know, but it uh, goes back to Hiram Cox, 1797. So he wanted to establish uh, what he called wastelands um, to create a, a chokey, a chokey being a prison. These are his words. And he was working for the East India Company, um, and he wanted to create a, a chokey yeah. for, for immigrants, as he said. But just to give some context here, the Rohingya uh, from Arakan, they had their, a perfectly um, successful and, and extraordinary way of living that was that, you know, in their homeland, they had their own kings. Mm -hmm. And this was all stripped away. 
So it's for hundreds of years now, and this yeah. is where we are at the present at the present moment with this. Yeah. I mean, the, the land is. When I arrived there with you, yeah, I just thought, how can these huts actually make it through another year? And and the first time that we had, like I had gone there, there was so much. Uh, it, it, like even now, every, every time I go back, it's just you can you can see the the change is so palpable. It's just so. I mean, it's just so visible how how much sort of it has, you know, like the land is sort of changing, and I think it's and we like we like we walked and we saw a couple of the huts, and uh, it's just remarkable how I think one of the poets was telling us about how they do not, you know, like there's nothing to do for them over there mm. and you know there's just sort of this arid you know the sort of dead time yeah it's arid, sort of aridness both outside and within the camps itself mm. yeah yeah i mean the the schools are mm. not even allowed to be called schools yeah. uh in in the camps so mm. though there are some extraordinary things happening mm. with education uh, for example friendship who we worked mm. with um there is a, you know continued oppression in mm. the camps <laughs> Because the denial of education is, of course, we've not mentioned that, but it's something that's happened yeah, it's for many years. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, I mean, continually through the uh, history in Myanmar. There's an interview right at the end of this book, actually, by Mayu, who says, um, uh, I, th I asked him about you know, what, what it's like to be a Rohingya poet, a kind of generic question. And he said, well, in, in Myanmar, I wasn't allowed to be a poet. You know, if you're a Rohingya, you cannot be a poet. Um, so it gives you a sense of just the kind of um, deprivation. Um, I think we'd better see if anyone in the audience has any questions. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, please. Uh, I think there's a roaming mic, actually, if uh. we could, because they're recording this event, and hopefully they'll be able to hear it in the camps, yeah. which would be fantastic. So let's have the mic. Um, so just looking at your amazing pictures... Um, on the pictures of the workshops, it looks like there's lots of lads, not so many women. Mm -hmm. So could you talk about that? Was it difficult to get women to come? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, very difficult. Um, I mean, there's so many cultural forces at work here. Just to be in the same space would um, be almost almost impossible. We had Bilkis, who was in there. Who was there? Who was my transcriber? She was, it was wonderful working with her. But at the same time, uh, we had sort of in, we, we had asked around and inquired uh, about whether it would be possible to find a to poet have a mixed, mixed, yeah, to mixed have a mixed audience. Mm. But it was difficult uh, mm. to find. But I think within the anthology itself, you will you'll see that we have our longest centerpiece poem is written by uh, is written by a woman poet, and we have two others who are fast. Mm. After you know, like wonderful... Really like, beautiful poems as yeah. well, yeah. It's a major problem. Yeah. Uh, I know you yeah. tried You, you tried yeah. very hard, didn't you? Yeah. It, it sort of reminds me of when I was... I, I was years ago, um, uh, Art published a, a book on Myanmar poetry. And poetry in Myanmar, uh, I edited this... I co-edited this book with Coco Thet. It's, it's con considered as a man's sport. Mm. Uh, poetry is poetry's for the guys. You know, that's what mm. the men do. And, you know, ladies might be at home, you know, doing something is much more uh, domesticated. Mm. Mm. Those are split lines. 
And, and I had to look really hard just to, for the possibility of uh, publishing one single poet from Myanmar. So I think a lot of that comes from um, yeah. being in Myanmar, and, and it's, again, a problem across, it seems to me, mm -hmm. uh, across the whole of Southeast Asia. But, uh, yeah, we did find female poets. Um, the Spread. poet yeah. that you'll hear from to conclude our, our, our talk today uh, is, is an extraordinary uh, poet living in Canada at the moment, so often we had to look outside of the mm. camps themselves. Yeah. And you've spoken of for future plans. You do hope to try and mm. facilitate, get, get a female poet into um, Yeah, um, I think that would be the way. And I know, think that would open up a lot more uh, possibilities to actually, you know, allow a female space so that we can, uh, you know, for them to sort of feel more comfortable given mm. the cultural context and... But even so, it'd probably be, I would suggest, almost impossible, would you say, to have a mixed workshop? Ah, yes. I think having a mixed workshop mm. would be very difficult. Mm. It was a really interesting Your question. question. Is that someone at the back? I'm deeply uneducated, but I think it would be useful for us to know, uh, and certainly for myself, uh, to know how you can define this, the Rohingya problem in Myanmar. Where on earth did it come from? Why were they so despised and, 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 and treated as a degenerate other class? Well, it's a good question. Um, we could ask the same question of refugees all over the world, perhaps. But of course, yeah, I understand. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I gave you a bit of backstory there with Captain Cox. I suppose it was part of uh, an idea to really divide and rule the country, which is, was the colonial agenda. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's partly why the kingdoms were broken up. Um, I mean, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Another question? Yeah, uh, this lady here has been waving vibrantly. I'd just like to ask you, how did you select these poets and how did they know you were coming? Yeah, yeah, that was, that was an interesting part of the process, wasn't yeah. it? I it mean, goes back to how we started uh, working in the first place. Uh, James was working with Mayu and I was working separately on my, with the translations. And I think uh, once we had sort of gone through some of the poets together, um, I think there's a lot of s similar uh, tastes in what I think what we consider, and uh, you know, just for the anthology. Are you in particular about the anthology, or no? I meant for the workshops. For oh, the workshops. For oh, for the workshops. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, like Shazar oh. says, I mean, I was working with Mayu, and mm -hmm. um, once it became apparent that I was going to visit Bangladesh yes. with you and go yeah. to the camps. Um, we asked around, we asked widely just to refer to the earlier question, yeah. trying to um, get a balance of gender. And uh, Mayu set the workshops up with us, yeah. even though it was too dangerous, in fact, for him to participate them in, in the workshops himself. So a really remarkable thing he did there. Yeah. So he used his contacts yeah. to sort of find yeah. people who were interested in that. This sort of points towards the future as well, because there, there's some, again, you know, really vigorously writing the community. There's, there's uh, the Rohingya Art Garden, totally yeah. online through Facebook. And they've set up their own writing communities, which is just 
really great to see. You know, yeah. this happened just before we arrived, course, yeah. and it's now thriving. There's lots of Rohingya poets who are emerging from this um, you know, very, very platform. And they're publishing there, and they're sort of, uh, you know, finding their, sort of creating their own space, which is wonderful mm. to see. Mm. Hi, um, can you tell us a bit about the process after the workshops in terms of editing and mm. trying to oh. correspond in the build-up to the book? Because I imagine that was really hard, yeah. like how you communicated with the poets and things. Yeah, yeah. I just might want to take this one. Yeah, so, so, so Shazar was still in Bangladesh when I left Bangladesh and, um, and actually jet lag was really useful. So I, I, would, I would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and phone or Skype with um, uh, Shazar, would go through poems. Poems were coming in all the yeah. time. You know, sometimes it's 10 poems a day. Uh, that, yeah. a, lot, a lot of poems. And um, we uh, sent, would send back some suggestions if there were. And, and often there were, like Shazar said earlier, we'd think about possibilities of form, which were quite new to the Rohingya poets themselves. Yeah. And that was, that was pretty rapid. You know, in two <laughs> weeks, we edited what became, you know, doubled the size did, of the book yeah. and, and edited the book in two weeks from there. It was also important, another important part of the editorial process that we, uh, that I feel uh, afterwards was that we, we worked, like everything that we had done in the workshops, uh, alongside when we were emailing them and we were like sending in suggestions or they were sending in their work we were still working with them through the emails and you know explaining every sort of editorial uh, decisions and then um, then they were then you know being their poems they were agreeing mm. uh, you know they were they were thinking about how to use that form and space and you know I think and even afterwards they sort of uh, their newer works after that they started using you know, they started thinking about that and sort of going into it, and then the new works reflected. So I think, yeah. Yeah, trying to sort of create and help create a new poetics. And, yeah. You know, everyone's really, I think, taken to yeah. it and yeah. writing really well now. So the, yeah. the literature is good to sort of step away yeah. um, and just to see the kind yeah. of writing that's emerged since. Yeah. I, I know we haven't got, how much time do we have left? Because we've got a video to yeah. play. Yeah. Uh, not really very long. Do you mind yeah. if we read one part? Or is yeah, that, I think that'd be nice. Is that yeah, right let's to read one? Okay, so we're going we're gonna to close with a video, and I'd like to make time for it. Um, do you mind yeah. if I just read a poem before that as well? So one, one quick poem. Okay. Okay, I lied. Two short poems. Romero's The Cut Bud. Grandma planted a seed. A few days later, it turned into twin plants. They grew together like old friends, green leaves like butterfly wings. My drunk uncle came and cut one bud, breath in silence. The other lives, a bud bearing white flowers beside the cut bud. Ah, no scope for friendship. This is a poem by Fida Shania. Um, she's writing a poem about uh, the first day at school. And um, just a couple of uh, quick notes on this poem. So when she says kala, 
A color is a racial, uh, racial slur, particularly used for Rohingya by Burmese Buddhists, and it means foreigner. And Sama uh, is a school madam or teacher. First day at school. In the morning, I was so excited. I went to school early to find a seat at the front of the class. This chair is not for a color, Samaya told me. And she sent me to the back, and I shredded. That day, the lesson was discrimination, not curriculum, the illnesses of the heart. I went to school smiling, came back crying. And we'll play the video from uh, a wonderful poet called uh, Yasmin Ullah, who um, I just give you a, a little, little bit from from her. So um, from her bio, sorry, she. Well, she'll say this in the video, so I'll just read something else. But she, she now lives in Canada, and she's president of the Rohingya Human Rights Network, which is a non-profit group led by activists across, across Canada. And it looks to advocate and raise public awareness of the particularities of the Rohingya genocide. So this is a video from Yasmin Ullah, and, and thanks, everyone, for being here and for listening. And uh, just, uh, I'd like to... Just say one more oh, thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, if you know, like I like with the song collections, there's some of the songs, like the ones I've read and are in the book, can all be found on uh, if you search on YouTube, Row Archive 2019. Uh, they can be found through that. You can listen to the songs that are there, and hopefully, you know, it'll lead to more open translations and sort of more spaces for these works to be recorded and sent in and yeah. I think Ark will put yeah. those links up on yeah. the official, this is the unofficial launch, well this is the official launch, launch. but the book, <laughs> the book is out at yeah. the end yeah. of the month so yeah. if you snaffle it up today you're getting early copies. Yeah. But those, those links preview. will be on the, on the website. <laughs> yeah. So look for Ark publications. Thank you. Hello everyone, my name is Yasmin Ullah. I am a Rohingya. I was born in the northern Rakhine state of Myanmar. And uh, my family fled to Thailand uh, in 1995, and we remained refugee and stateless there for a number of years until 2011 when we were helped by some very kind Canadians um, who helped us not only to sponsor us to Canada, but also helped us resettle here. Um, and I currently uh, live in Vancouver, one of the most beautiful cities off the west coast of Canada. And today I just wanted to share with you parts of my poem called uh, Birth. And I decided to write um, a little bit about our journey since we were born. And uh, the core of our existence um, is uh, highlighted in this poem. And I hope that it would um, tell a story of how ours is, you know, a very, very communal uh, struggle of humans, really. It's, to, it's just a human struggle story. Um, but it's also written with a great sense of pain, um, the pain of being unwanted, the pain of being lesser than, the pain of being erased, um, the pain of, you know, uh, erasure as a community, the pain of um, trying so hard but never... Um, never, never feel like uh, you're ever enough. And uh, I hope that um, this story would appeal to you um, 
just because it's not, you know, it's not just a, a story that is ex exclusive to Rohingya, but it is, you know, something that we all struggle with, I believe. And um, I hope that you could relate and hopefully you'd feel the connection to us um, as your fellow friends and humans, not just as victims. I was born under a sun that burns through skin. Rohingya are dark. If they say we look like beggars, we really become beggars. No free will, no choices left. Blood that swims through my veins, the agony of women shapes me into a living body. Women who in every attack, every massacre were raped, their souls assaulted. Women who find themselves victims of human trafficking, sex trafficking, because that for them is better compared to living in this soul-shattering, hellish reality. I was born of loving mothers who, despite their plight, give and give everything for their children, no question asked, so they could have the future their mothers were denied, even if it means carrying the children in their too tired arms, bleeding internally excessively from their gang rapes, their tortures, their throat slits, their flesh sliced, hours before fleeing. Rohingya mothers run with all their might, hoping to make it across to the other side. Feet worn by thorns and pebbles, mothers who bled and cried but kept going. Little did they know, they would be torn apart from their children the very moment makeshift rafts capsized. Their will to live was strong, but the river's current separates humanity was stronger. I was born of the people whose long exiles are destined. Our long journey of pain, the world took over half century to notice. I lost count how many times we became refugees. I lost count how many left their cities, never allowed back, leaving children behind, turning backs on family, outside the comfort of home, alone and struggling. Our feet are so tired. Broken heels bleed, the mud we walk through dried, hardened. If we walk the entire earth barefoot, would we ever find a home? I was born of the forced crooked smile, blurred with tears, the slow fade of resilience. I was born as one of the forgotten, of those who the world doesn't quite remember. But at least I was born, so you can hear me speaking up. So you, the world, can listen. So please, look at me, my people, us, through the lens you reserve for someone special, wholesome, human, not so different from you. Almost crying, actually. That's very, very moving. Wow. Um, and congratulations, Chisa and James and Ark, um, on this such an important book. And we're all very honoured to be here for its launch. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Claire. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.